you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Lone Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. LAUSD is back in business this week with a wide-scale reopening next week. We'll hear from parents and educators on how they're feeling now that school's back in session. Plus, every minute of the Derek Chauvin trial for the killing of George Floyd has been broadcast on TV or streamed online. But find out why for black people, it has been really tough to watch. It's all ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, the experience of watching the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd is not the same for everyone, especially if you're black. I don't want to watch, but I have to watch. And I think what's been hard about the trial is the dread of acquittal. That conversation just ahead. But first to education. The Los Angeles Unified School District is starting to welcome younger students back to some campuses this week, with all schools and grades to follow in the next few weeks. And on Monday, the superintendent of the uh, district, Austin Butner, announced a plan to possibly extend the school year. Staff will be proposing to add one extra week in August and another in January. Each of these weeks will be split between time for teachers and school staff to plan and participate in additional training, and time for students to process the trauma and anxiety they've experienced the past year. That breaks down to six days of learning and four days of staff training. But it appears that while some families and certainly some officials want more instruction, adding extra days to the school calendar is a tough sell. Of more than 376,000 responses to a recent survey about this, 44% of parents said to leave the calendar alone. The school board is expected to vote on the proposal later this month. But today, let's hear about how some parents and education advocates are feeling about this and school reopenings. John Rogers is a professor of education at UCLA and is co-founder and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education and Access. Ana Ponce is executive director of the advocacy organization Great Public Schools Now. And Evelyn Aleman is the founder of Our Voice, Communities for Quality Education, a parent parent empowerment group for Spanish-speaking LAUSD parents. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. All right, let's begin with the process for an extended school year for LAUSD students. Now, the motivation is to help offset learning loss during the pandemic, and it really gets to the heart of this discussion, which is how do we best serve students at this unprecedented time? Anna, let's start with you on this. Your advocacy group, Great Public Schools Now, recently released its own report calling for a stronger plan to address learning loss. So is two extra weeks of classes what you had in mind? Well, that could be part of the plan, and we're definitely supportive of it. What we also want to know more are the specific purpose for the two weeks. How is that going to really support kids and how the time is going to be used? In addition to it being integrated to the other elements of our recommendations for a comprehensive recovery plan for all kids. 
especially those that, that have been disproportionately impacted, such as students with special needs and English language learners. So it sounds like for you, two weeks is just maybe not enough. Two weeks and more. And more. Okay. Now, John, how do you think the district could make the best of that time? And, and should those days look like ordinary class days from, from the past? I think that strategies that try to expand the amount of learning time and target that expanded learning time towards communities with greatest needs are terrific. In fact, in Massachusetts, before the pandemic, they had been trying over the last few years to expand the amount of learning time in schools serving high poverty communities. And it was a very successful initiative. They added 300 hours a year to those schools. Now, importantly, those schools didn't just add more time and do the same thing, but rather they added time in ways that invited students to participate in creative activities, in art, in civic engagement, so that young people were there and wanted to be there, wanted to spend the additional time, and were more engaged and deeply engaged in their learning. LAUSD classrooms are opening in phases starting this week. Evelyn, most of the families in your group are immigrants who are mainly Spanish-speaking. How are these parents feeling about in-person classes? And, and, and tell us why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Sure. Most of the parents that I'm speaking with are Latino immigrant parents. They come from communities that are very vulnerable. They've been most impacted by the virus and have had the most challenges in trying to get vaccines. So the parents are very uneasy about it. Most of them are telling me, you know, we're not sending our children back to school. We want LAUSD to provide a clear and transparent plan of what that will look like in the fall. Uh, we've come this far. Why the rush at the end of the school year to open up schools? But they are looking to the fall. They are 100% on board wanting that opening. Can't wait to do it but they want their families vaccinated. They want assurance. They want to be safe. 74% of the children in LAUSD are Latino, and we have been the community most impacted during the virus. All right, so you're talking about fundamental issues of inequity here and, and how that's driving parents to keep kids at home, at least for now. Uh, and, and your group is also concerned about inequity in education, but your perspective uh, to help offset that is to open more classrooms. So uh, tell, us, tell us how, explain uh, your views there. Well, we're definitely um, excited that the reopening process is starting, but completely support every family making the right choice for them and agree with Evelyn in terms of the inequities across the district and, uh, you know, across the country. The other point we want to elevate as well is just how families have had to step up and how they've had to make compromises to really support their kids and how partnerships have been developed and how families have really been seen as co-partners in the education of children and just wanting to validate that and celebrate that and really encourage that to continue to be part of the recovery process where we are engaging families and we're cultivating those relationships and we're changing the way that we communicate with families because we've learned a lot over the past year. And it's not just about reopening the classrooms themselves, but it's about the whole picture of how we're reopening into the new world and the new opportunities that we have to better serve our kids and communities. And Anna, tell us uh, what uh, Great Public Schools Now's report find in terms of how student mental health has been affected by, by being at home. Yeah, we were looking at the uh, student satisfaction survey and, you know, the, the kids are feeling disconnected from their peers. They're satisfied with their teachers. So it was sort of a mixed result. We're calling for a screening tool to really assess where kids are. We just don't want a cookie cutter solution for everyone across the board, but to really think about the communities that have been more impacted and how we're going to assess the social, emotional, and mental health of our kids coming back. We're talking about how to best help kids carry on as LAUSD and other districts resume in-class instruction. Our guests are John Rogers, professor of education at UCLA, Ana Ponce, executive director of Great Public Schools Now, and Evelyn Aleman, founder of Our Voice Communities for Quality Education. And John Rogers, you have a concern about how this discussion is even phrased. What are your thoughts when we talk about things like catching up or making up for lost learning and the effect that that can have on students? I worry a little bit that the framework of learning loss can lead educators to double down on practices that haven't frankly been that successful in the past, that creating inclusive learning environments in which all students are successful. I think it's really important at this moment that as young people are coming back to school, 
we invite them back in ways where they're feeling comfortable and where they're feeling heard. I think Evelyn and Anna have made important points about engaging parents, engaging students. We want to hear their stories. We want to hear what's happening with them. We want to hear what they've learned over the past year as they've been away from school. And then we want to help them make sense of this so that they can move forward in more powerful ways. John, are you worried that maybe making up for lost learning, or as I mentioned, catching up, will create a situation in classrooms for for teachers and parents that maybe will put too much pressure on kids to reach for unrealistic goals? I think it's a question of timing, that in the next few weeks, as we finish off this school year, what I would most want is for young people to again feel comfortable being at the school site, to feel safe at that school site, to be comfortable interacting with their peers, and to truly then be ready when they come back next fall to take off and have powerful learning again. So this is not to say that the teachers and students can't engage in, in real education in the next few weeks, but my primary goal as a teacher or as a principal would be to establish that sense of comfort, that sense of deep engagement um, that we want young people to have and that really promotes powerful learning. Evelyn, while you were very active at LAUSD parent before the pandemic, uh, you started Our Voice after getting sick with COVID-19 and your child was struggling in high school at the time. Tell us about your experience trying to get support. So my child was very active in like the superintendent student advisory council, our school board members student advisory council. And uh, she really couldn't connect with many of her teachers because in the early, you know, stages of the pandemic, it really was pandemonium in, in a sense, right? But when I reached out to the school and didn't really receive the support that I needed and I was struggling with COVID, I thought to myself, what about all the other children in LA Unified who aren't as vocal, whose child doesn't participate in these committees and don't have access to these decision makers? And that prompted me as soon as I recovered to launch this Facebook page. And I have to tell you, a, you know, I, it was a Facebook page and group. And it's kind of like the waters just broke loose. Once I started it, uh, parents just came on board, all Latino immigrants. They reached out to me through Messenger and said, you know, can we start a forum? Can we start a conversation? And everywhere from the Northeast Valley to the Southeast cities, as far as Southgate and Huntington Park and Central LA, Latino immigrant parents are coming on this forum to just post information that they find, that they share. So it's quickly becoming a, a place where we can come together and and support education. But I, I wanted to say real quickly to the point that Anna made earlier, and also John, you know, learning loss. Okay, we're very clear on the need to address this, as well as the social emotional needs when the kids come back in, in the fall. And that's going to be a real area of focus, but we need a plan. And we need specific, what Anna spoke to, definitely a plan and specifics. That's Evelyn Aleman, founder of Our Voice, Communities for Quality Education, a parent empowerment group for Spanish-speaking LAUSD students. John Rogers, professor of education at UCLA and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access, as well as Ana Ponce, executive director of the advocacy organization Great Public Schools Now. Now, after the break, we're going to continue this conversation about how to best serve students in this unprecedented time in education. More on that when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell. 
shiny shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. All right, let's get back to our conversation about how to best serve students as more classrooms reopen. Our guests today are Ana Ponce, Executive Director of the advocacy organization Great Public Schools Now. Also with us, Evelyn Aleman, founder of Our Voice, Communities for Quality Education, a parent empowerment group for Spanish-speaking LAUSD parents. And John Rogers, Professor of Education at UCLA and co-founder and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. John, choice is a buzzword that comes up a lot in education, but can parents feel okay to decide whether and when to send their kids back to campus on an individual basis, based on their families and and child's needs? I think it's essential that we give parents the discretion to decide when and how their children re-engage with school. We need to reestablish the trust that is the linchpin of learning. And that trust really relies upon parents trusting the school system, trusting that their children's school will be safe in a healthful environment. And so parents need to be on board. Now, the the district needs to be able to communicate to parents in ways where it's making its case and it's establishing why and how they're, they're creating that safe environment. But we need to let parents make that decision themselves. Because, John, you know, in a lot of cases, and I've seen this online, I've seen this in other places, parents that don't send their kids back, it's almost as if they're making some kind of political statement. I think that's less true here in Los Angeles. I've been talking to principals all across the country, and you absolutely see political statements being made in very conservative areas about the vaccine, about coming back to school. I I don't think necessarily there's political statements being made. I think that there's parents who are afraid. Um, There's parents who've had extraordinarily difficult experiences over the last few months, and they need some space and some support to, to be able to make this decision and to feel comfortable with bringing their kids back to school. All right, here's a question for the group. So let's start with uh, Evelyn on this one. Uh, There's a few months left of the school year. What are the pros and cons of getting kids back in class now versus waiting for the fall? Well, the pro is that, you know, some parents have the choice if they so wish to send their children back to school and get the support and the resources that they need. The con is that uh, we just still don't know enough about this B117 British strain of the virus. And certainly the CDC is sending very confusing messages to certainly several of the parents that I'm in communication with about safety, particularly in children. So that's, that's a big con for us. There's definitely a message that is coming through from the parents that I think we need to be aware of. And that's that there's a lot of trauma and there is a lot of mourning in our community, in the Latino community. Uh, The majority of my parents have either had COVID and have lost loved ones. You know, I've lost three people between December and January, and we've also uh, haven't had quite a chance to to mourn them. Another thing is that many of the parents that I'm in communication with have comorbidities, meaning they have diabetes and they have rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes and multiple sclerosis, diabetes and cancer. So they're very much aware that there's a big risk in sending their children back to school. Uh, when we don't really know uh, at what point we're, we're reaching uh, herd immunity. And uh, we certainly are still having struggles accessing the vaccine. And that's that's a real area of concern. Anna, pros and cons of getting kids back in class now versus waiting for the fall. Yeah, I'll give you the two perspectives, one from GPSN and then one as a parent of a third grader. The pros are definitely to give families the choice and to respect that choice that they're making in this decision. And another pro is really sort of just the reopening process. We had to get there at some point and we're there now. We're going to learn a lot. Uh, There's going to be bumps. Everyone needs to be patient. Uh, It's going to be a journey. I think that's a pro. A con is it's six weeks. It's disruptive. You know, that's where I come in as a parent. Here my son is in a stride. And now everything's going to change for everyone, whether you're going in person or staying online. It's six weeks. It's 
two hours and 40 minutes for elementary students and high school kids, secondary, really they're not getting any in-person instruction. So I'm not sure this is just sort of like implementing the safety plan for them. And so I see that as a con. In terms of us, my son is anxious and nervous. And so, you know, the pro is he gets to see his friends. The con is he has to wear a mask the whole day and he has to not touch anyone or get close to them. That's causing a lot of anxiety. So we're sort of going through this process and trying to figure it out. One day he's 100% excited to go in person. The next day he's 100% determined to stay at home. And so there's pros and cons all around. John, what about you? Pros and cons of getting kids back in class now versus waiting for the fall. So I agree with the, the cons that Evelyn and Anna have raised. I would add on the pro side, that I think bringing young people back to school may open up new opportunities for assessment to get a sense of where students are in terms of their learning, in terms of their mental health. I think it opens up new opportunities for young people to be in community with one another. And I think in community, young people can do better and can work through problems that they otherwise would experience. And then finally, I think that our task moving forward isn't simply to reproduce what we've done in the past, but to reinvent schooling. And I think the sooner we can get young people back in schools and educators engaged in that interpersonal um, mode of of interaction, the more rapidly we're going to open up new thinking, new opportunities for fundamentally reimagining what it is that our schools in Los Angeles do and can achieve. So, John, how do we get kids then feeling good about returning to class? Uh, because that seems to be and something that I've been hearing for months now when it comes to parents and teachers. They, they want the kids to at least feel like they're happy to be there. A, I think we need to invite them in and invite them in in ways where they're participating in activities that they enjoy. And B, I think we need to do it in a way that's giving them some choice. Back to the idea that parents need to have choice. Students need to feel like they have some autonomy as well. I was talking to a principal yesterday about this, and she's actually opened her school already. And she said that one of the things that she's done in this elementary school is to ensure that young people and teachers feel like they have some moments in the day where they can take their mask off, that they can go outside in a very safe way and have power over um, when they're wearing the mask and not. And I think that sense of control and giving young people the, the discretion, giving them a sense of agency is an important part of inviting them to feel comfortable and encouraging them to feel like this is their space and they can learn here. We're talking about how to best help kids carry on as LAUSD and other districts resume in-class instruction. Our guests are John Rogers, professor of education at UCLA, Ana Ponce, executive director of Great Public Schools Now, and Evelyn Aleman, founder of Our Voice Communities for Quality Education. All right, here's another one for uh, all three of you. Let's uh, stay with John on this one uh, to start off. When we look at ways to mitigate education inequities, how do we tackle that uh, in the immediate future? One of the issues that has been an issue, frankly, since I finished high school in Los Angeles in 1979, has been underfunding. In 1978, Proposition 13 passed, and that was a statewide initiative that depressed the amount of funds that are going to education of public schools in California. As a consequence, California fell way behind other states. And in that climate of scarcity, Those low-income communities um, that that need the most high-quality education have been most poorly served. And so we need to increase the overall spending on our schools so that we have smaller class sizes, so that we have more counselors and other support staff that can come into our schools. I will say that one of the most hopeful initiatives in recent years in Los Angeles has been the move towards more community schools schools that are serving the local community and that are providing deeper connections between the school and an array of social services that are based in the local community. Anna, what about you when we look at ways to mitigate education inequities? Yeah, well, I would start, well, I agree with John just in terms of needing um, more funding that is 
an absolute need that we need to figure out here in the state of California, but it also comes down to funding equity and how the funding that we do have is allocated. In particular, the dollars that are coming from the federal government and the state in the near future and how that's gonna be distributed uh, across the district and whether it's gonna be equal or it's gonna be an equitable distribution is something that I'm going to keep an eye on, which takes me to the community schools model and the wraparound services that our kids need. It's not just about a single issue, it's about the intersectionality of all the things that impact them inside the school and outside the school and community schools really get to that. And then also underscoring the flexibility that communities need in terms of how they invest their dollars. Not everyone needs the same and really sort of elevating that there will be some flexibility on how schools or community of schools networks use the dollars that are allocated to them. Evelyn, what about you? Yeah, I think it's resources and supports. I think the parents are very much aware that there's definitely inequity in their schools. And if we just look at the disinfection, you know, LAUSD has spent so much money right now on the disinfecting of schools. And the parents in in our group say to me, uh, you know, you know, we have to see it to believe it. And that's probably true that they are doing that. They said, but you know what? Before COVID, our schools were so neglected and in such bad shape. How long will that, uh, you know, level of, of support and those resources last when the public eye isn't on the district? And so uh, we need to make sure that these resources and these supports are ongoing and that we stay on top of them. Hay que ver para creer. That's like my grandmother was just in the room. <laughs> with all of us right now, because that's what you would always say. John, you wanted to add something. I just wanted to to build on one other point, which is to say that all three of us have offered responses that are focused on how schools can provide more equitable services. I think one of the lessons of the pandemic is it's very difficult to ensure young people's development when we have the deep levels of economic inequality and health inequality that prevail in Los Angeles today. And so absolutely, we need to provide more services to young people in schools, but we simultaneously need to address the deep levels of economic inequality that make young people's housing insecure, make their healthcare insecure, make their family lives more insecure than they need to be. We want young people to develop. We need to have a more just society. John Rogers, a professor of education at UCLA and is co-founder and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. Ana Ponce is executive director of the advocacy organization Great Public Schools Now. And Evelyn Aleman is the founder of Our Voice, Communities for Quality Education, a parent empowerment group for Spanish-speaking LAUSD parents. John, Ana, and Evelyn, thank you very much. Thank you, A. Thank you, A. The trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd has been broadcast on TV or streamed online. Every single minute of that testimony serving as a reminder to black people about where they stand in the nation's long-established racial power structure. Why this trial has not been easy for some to watch. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Josie Huang. LA's Chinatown is a neighborhood in flux. I tell the stories of recent Asian American immigrants and families who've been here for generations. I can never forget where I come from. How they navigate being Asian and American. But her landlord has ordered the tenants, mostly Asian immigrants, to move out so she can renovate the property and how that shapes LA's future. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. The defense in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged in the death of George Floyd, rested its case today. Chauvin declined to take the stand, informing the judge he would invoke the Fifth Amendment. 
Closing arguments are expected next week. Now, leading up to this point, we've been confronted with difficult testimony and videos and photos that are, frankly, really difficult to watch. We asked our listeners for their thoughts about what they've seen and heard, and this is some of what they told us. Hello, my name is Batia Adrabi from Tarzana. I just, I found this video so, so disturbing, I, I couldn't even watch it. The only thing I can say is that this policeman is a murderer. He knows he's killing this man. He has no problem with it. He's almost enjoying himself. He is looking directly at the people surrounding him. They're begging him to stop, and he has no problem with that. He is so sure of himself that he ever so nonchalantly keeps one hand in his pocket. He might as well smoke a cigarette with the other hand with plenty of time to finish it. My name is Valerie Pollard, and I live in Santa Monica. It is just so sad that this is 2021, and it appears that since the beginning of slavery, there has been no justice for the African-Americans who unwillingly were brought here as long as I have been here. I'm over 50. I don't think anything is going to change because I've had three generations of family pass on, experience the same thing. It's like wearing the same coat with a different color. Truthfully, I don't think that America is ever going to have justice for all and equality for all. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I live to see this change, but I doubt it very seriously. Hi, my name is Margot Howlett, and I'm calling about the trial that's going on. I live in Gardena, California. I'm following the trial because three years ago, my nephew was thrown to the ground, roughed up badly, had knees in his back, and this was over in Hawthorne, and it just brought back so many memories. And I always believed from that point on that the police are just one big gang. I know that we need them. We depend upon them to protect us. But, no, let's not take away all funding for them, but we have to do something so that they know that they are held accountable the way the law holds all of us accountable. It's been going on way too long. How many more people have to die? I don't want to watch it, but I have to watch it. And if it gets out with 5, 10, 15 years and people are in the streets and they have their signs, I will be out there. I'm 67 years old. I will be out there with my sign because enough is enough. That was Take Two listeners Batia Adrabi in Tarzana, Valerie Pollard in Santa Monica, and Margot Howlett in Gardena. Now, we've talked a lot about the role privilege plays in the justice system generally, but much of the commentary about what's been seen and heard the last few weeks of this trial suggests a specific type of privilege has been really on display here, one that distinctly comes with being in a position of power. Here to talk about this, I'm joined by writer Caroline Randall-Williams. Her most recent essay for the New York Times is titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. Caroline Randall-Williams, welcome to Take Two. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Caroline, I understand it's been uh, difficult for you to watch the trial, which I'm sure uh, a lot of people can understand. Tell us what that experience has been like for you. Oh, um, I can't remember uh, which of the you know beautifully eloquent and terrifically moving uh, women who you just played um, said it, but she said, I don't want to watch, but I have to watch. And I think what's been hard about the trial is the dread of acquittal. And I think because every piece of meaningful evidence supports uh, supports conviction, in my opinion. I mean, and I am, you know, I am, I'm as qualified as any of the jurors. It's just a grim knot in my stomach about this sort of micro look at the American justice system in this one courtroom and then the bigger picture 
questions about justice and power in America and how we got here. And so that's what's made it on the, the global scale hard to watch is that I just don't know how long I can stand um, of watching us sit with the question of, is America a place where the right thing happens when a black man dies? So the whole time, I mean, before this thing has even begun, you've already got it in the pit of your stomach. Acquittal is in the pit of your stomach, just kind of sitting there. The acquittal in the pit of my stomach. And then I think that, you know, there is the, you know, what's interesting and complicated for me to me is that I have um, the watching the traumas unfold of the actual scene. I mean, I watched once and I don't think I actually was able to get through the whole thing. Um, But I, I can read and I know what happened. And I think that there's, there's, there's a weird like self-care balance too of like, I know that injustice happens and I am going to fight. I'm going to advocate. I actually had to mute my microphone because I audibly sobbed um, when the last woman who spoke was talking about how she's 16, 67 years old. And, you know, if he doesn't get enough time or if he gets off, she'll be in the streets because we have to. And I, was so moved by that. Like, we know what the work is. We've seen this countless times. Um, and so the the specifics of a given case are due their dignity. But then, you know, I don't need any more proof that George Floyd was murdered, you know? And there's something just harrowing about the watching each piece of evidence from the lynching come out, yeah. you know? And Caroline, at the risk of having you to having you go back to that image in your head, because, you know, we heard it mentioned in that tape earlier of the three women, that image of, uh, of, of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck with his hands in his pockets. I mean, what message does that image say to you? And do you think it says to people of color? What it tells us is that egregious black suffering is easy to look at for white, for that man with power, for white men with power. Because what it looks like is, you know, I see that picture and you look at like, you know, just the orientation of Mr. Floyd's head and you look at, and you, and you watch the audio or you watch the videos and you hear the screams of people saying like, you know, he can't breathe. I mean, it's this idea that no matter how much you ask for your rights, how much you ask for your life to look like something that needs to be preciously cared for there are people who are just prepared to see you as like an animal. There are people that are prepared to see you as a less worthy human. They're not going to dignify your life with the like care, the physical care that it deserves. Now in this trial, we've heard from an array of witnesses who have spoken about the guilt, the guilt they carry for not doing more. And this after some felt so helpless, they called the police on the police that day. Let's hear uh, what witness Donald Williams told the jury after being asked about the phone call he made. At some point, um, did you make a 911 call? That is correct. Uh, they called the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. And so you felt the need to call the police? Yeah, I felt the need to call the police on the police. Now, there were police there, right? There were, there were police there. Okay, and why didn't you just talk to them about it? I believe that they didn't. I just, we just didn't have no connection. You know, I spoke to them, but not on a connection of or a human being relationship. Um, did you... Well, believe that they were involved. Yes, totally. So, Caroline, what does that say about the desperation of the situation and power dynamic black people face in today's criminal justice system? Well, it's just sort of this like wild and sinister. I don't even I mean, hope is not the right word, but it's this weird like I understand that the idea of this institution of the police force can work maybe, or it ought to work. I'm seeing a defunct version of it, but maybe there is some functional version of it somewhere in this city. And I'm gonna do the, I am just because somebody else is breaking the law, like I'm gonna operate within the parameters of it and try again. But it just, it indicates this strangeness that like you just sort of have to roll the dice and hope you get a good cop because there aren't enough rules and regulations to make sure that you get one. 
Yeah, you're in a bizarre world, right, in a way, Caroline, because you're watching something that you believe to be a murder, and you think it's the police that are doing this, but yet who do you have to call but the police? Yeah, again, I'm thinking about these women whose, what I would call testimony you just played, um, and and you kind of go, yeah, we have to have law enforcement, but we have got to train them differently. We don't maybe don't need to defund them, but we need to reframe them um, because it's an it's an insane, you know, the whole idea of police immunity that sort of makes them, you know, there's Americans witnessing them in this like wild malfeasance in this moment. And all they can do is call more police because the police are immune to reproach in some wild way. Now, are the witnesses, uh, in a way, also victims in this? Some of them under 18 years old who stood there, witnessed this, and now have to carry that with them the rest of their lives. Oh, God. I mean, of course they are. I can't. It's unspeakable that children saw that. Um, It's unspeakable that anybody, I mean, witnessing a murder is a trauma. Um, And those people witnessed a murder. Um, by most reasonable people's account. And um, I don't know. It's funny. I think about like the history of lynch mobs and how it used to be like, you see those postcards from the you know early 20th century where there are people like picnicking around a black body hanging from a tree, things like that. And you think it used to be And that reminds us of where we are and where we've been, that we live in a country where people used to make picnics around dead black bodies in the name of, you know, justice and maintaining certain kinds of power and oppression. And you just, and it makes me weary. Um, It makes me weary that like, we're not far enough away from that, that I know what to say about the fact that we've returned to it. We're talking with writer Caroline Randall-Williams about the Derek Chauvin trial. Caroline, you know, historically the American criminal justice system has a has a track record of letting violence against people of color go unpunished. I mean, we've seen acquittal after acquittal after acquittal. Um, where do you think the system is today in terms of holding officers accountable for crimes against individuals of color? I know we talked about qualified immunity, but uh, generally, where, where do you think it is today? Um. <laughs> What do I think about where the system is today? I mean, it doesn't work. I, I think that that's that's what I can say is that it doesn't it doesn't work because there is not functional external accountability that protects Black Americans from the bias of white law enforcement. Um, I think that bias training and is and, and bias assessment are like really critical tools that we don't use um, enough in this country when we're when we're like arming people in any circumstance. Uh, I think we have to know because there are ways of assessing bias, right? So we have to know whether or not um, a police officer is like you know harboring implicit unexamined bias that would maybe lead them to think that they should be using excessive force when they shouldn't, right? I think I think that there's there's a lot of ways that we have, there's a lot of tools we have to both educate and assess a state of mind that we don't use. Because when they say state of mind, it's like they felt danger. Well, maybe they only felt danger because they have bias. Um, and so we have to figure out how we account for that in both training and in um, assessing wrongdoing on the other side in ways that haven't been implemented yet. If Derek Chauvin is convicted, if he is convicted, what, if anything, would it say about progress in our justice system? Or is it just simply a testament to the gravity and breadth of evidence that people of color need in order to get justice in America? I think if Derek Chauvin is um, convicted, it will be a small relief. I don't know if it'll say anything about our justice system. I think it will say that, thank God it works when we all watched the murder happen in real time. Um, Cause that will feel crazy making if the answer is anything but that and the, and st- still, and yet like it still could be. And I think that it will say, you know, and the number of people who have been acquitted 
yeah, it speaks to in order to get someone acquitted, we have to actually watch them commit the whole murder. And it has to take so long that we can't look away. Um, it can't, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's just an ugly thought. That's writer Caroline Randall-Williams discussing what we've seen in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Her most recent essay for The New York Times is titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. Caroline, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Take two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. If there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. The pandemic has changed work life for pretty much all of us, even for a high-profile athletic trainer now helping COVID-19 patients recover from long-term symptoms. From the California Report, Amanda Font brings us this story. first one I really started working with uh, was the 49ers, Jerry. As in Hall of Famer Jerry Rice. Derrick Dees, Chester Sapolo, a lot of the offense and defensive players. Harvey Shields has been working with professional athletes for years. San Francisco Giants players like Barry Bonds and Willie McCovey. Barry Bonds stands alone. U.S. Olympic ski team gold medalist Peekaboo Street. But his clients also include the former King of Tonga and Costco warehouse workers. Because Harvey is not the guy you call in if you're trying to bulk up. What I do is not a personal trainer. Uh, my, my title is a corrective exercise specialist. He tries to prevent injuries by watching how people move, their posture, and making adjustments. And if they do end up hurt, he's there to help them recover. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit people close to Harvey started to get sick. I haven't had it myself. I've had friends of mine, and I think that's also uh, affected me. I had friends of mine that was in Mississippi that died from the COVID. Then he started getting calls from clients struggling with COVID symptoms that just wouldn't go away. And you're going to take arms down. Come back up to here, take your hand out. They asked me to, to see what I could do to help them. Then I started helping. I said, ha ha, this is something that will work. And when you bring your arm down, you want to deep breathe with it. Ready? He started doing online sessions from his home in Menlo Park. He charges clients based on their needs and how much time he spends with them. I came up with a different approach and deep breathing. Some of the people that I've been working with, you know, they're still having these residuals after six months after having it, initial having the COVID. And bring it down. And relax. So what did you feel when you was doing that? My shoulder feels better, feels looser, and my chest is warm and stretched. Exactly. So you can feel it more. You're feeling that opening it up, right? So yep. I had probably almost every symptom that there was. The worst symptoms for me was a fever, a constant fever that would just never go away. Joni Girado has been a preschool teacher for 32 years, even during the pandemic. She says she wasn't super worried about working with kids, but in mid-December, she got COVID, and it hit her hard. It's like there's a band around your chest, and it's just sucking in your lungs. She says things were pretty touch and go for a while. 
Joni called the emergency room a few times when she was really struggling to breathe. My oxygen levels had deteriorated. I think I was, I think my lowest was 91, 92. Um, They say to come in around 90. But her 17-year-old daughter, Hannah, also had COVID. And she says she didn't want to leave her alone, so she toughed it out. With the constant fever and aches, she was hardly able to sleep. I, I got a call from Harvey on a Saturday night. It was, it was probably the sixth night. Joni met Harvey about 10 years ago, when his daughter was enrolled in her preschool in Menlo Park. She's since moved to Folsom, but the two are still in touch. When he found out she was sick, he called her, wanting to help. And I was like, no, you can call me tomorrow. Like, I really don't feel good. And he was like, nope, get up. Harvey convinced her to get onto her computer so he could teach her some exercises to help open up her lungs. And Joni says she felt better. So what you do, you want to, but it's just slow. It was kind of amazing. My my oxygen level went back up. I think it was about 95, 96 after like 20 minutes. And that night was the first night that I actually like slept. Up to here, you're going to take it out slowly here. During their video sessions, Harvey usually stands in his backyard, surrounded by trees. He demonstrates the movements slowly, checking in with Joni to see how she's feeling. Sometimes Joni's daughter Hannah joins. She runs track, and Harvey wants to make sure she doesn't have any lasting effects. Joni says part of what makes her feel better is just who he is. He's reassuring and intuitive. You got to feel the connection, watching me feel my energy, allow my energy and your energy connect. Ready? You're going to come and he's just a, a kind, caring human being who was taught at an early age to, to just give back to other people. That's kind of Harvey's personal philosophy. The greatest success in the world is being in the position to help someone else. Harvey grew up in a small town in Louisville, Mississippi. He says even though his family didn't have a lot, his mother and father still did what they could to help people in their community. And my mother would always always told me that it's not about you, it's about helping others. That was the most important thing that you should be focusing on. Even though we was poor, that she said that there was always someone out there was worse off than you. Harvey says his mother's lesson is a big part of the reason he's doing what he's doing now. Someone asked me, what's the difference between helping a professional athlete prepare for the Super Bowl and what you're doing? And I told him that preparing a person for the Super Bowl If they don't win the Super Bowl, they have next year to try to win again. But these people don't have that next year to worry about. They they have to make sure this is done now to make sure that they're able to survive now because next year is not promised to them. He wants to give people hope so they can keep fighting and get better. For The California Report, I'm Amanda Font. I always say every single day that uh, every Take Two episode is worth you downloading wherever you get your podcast. But this one today in particular, a really good sense of how your neighbors, your neighbors here in Southern California are feeling about a lot of different things. Schools reopening, the the Chauvin trial, a lot to get to on today's show. So just download it, listen to it. I'm sure that you will absolutely feel better about life after you listen. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. <laughs>